from Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chu. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. My name is Sophia Echeverria, and for this episode, Lauren Anderson spoke with Colette Beyer, class of 2006. Colette is working as a high-performance human brand strategist. In this interview, Lauren begins the conversation by asking how Colette made her way to Muhlenberg College. I was drawn to Muhlenberg because of the pre-med program, which is funny now in retrospect, but it's a fantastic program. And I had always wanted to be a doctor, fascinated with anatomy and physiology and health, generally speaking, and, and still am to this day, even though that's not the path that I ultimately took. And I went to a boarding school and they had us go ahead and, and rank all of our colleges. And Muhlenberg, you know, I thought I wanted to go to a big school, you know, University of Pennsylvania, you know, somewhere with a big, with a big science program. And my college counselor said, you know, I really think uh, Chris Hooker Herring had come to the school to talk at one point. And uh, she says, I really think you'd like Muhlenberg. You should go for a visit. And it just so happened to be that it ended up being my first visit of a college. And it was the best one. I absolutely fell in love with Muhlenberg, the campus, the feel, the professors, just the staff. Everybody was wonderful. And ultimately, I ended up um, going early decision, early acceptance and, and made Muhlenberg my number one choice. So math and science were never my strong suit. And that's okay because I'm the kind of person that's willing to struggle through whatever I have to do to just get to where I want to be. But I had an experience working in a hospital the summer before my freshman year at Muhlenberg that really kind of changed my outlook on certain things when it came to medicine. So I had already came into Muhlenberg with a bit of skepticism as to whether or not I would stay pre-med. The pre-med program was fantastic. And at the end of the day, I'm just not math and science gifted. It's something that I'm sure I could have really worked on, but I ultimately really fell in love with political science just because of the great breadth of courses that Muhlenberg requires students to take, especially in their first year. Um, I fell in love with uh, political science. And, and as people would joke, they said I majored in uh, Mohsen Hashim and Jack Gambino. I, uh, I studied a lot of international political economy and still love it. I'm curious, would you be willing to share what it was that caused you to begin rethinking pre-med beyond the math and science part of it? Well, my mother worked in healthcare for about 30 years, and it was right around the time when managed care was really coming on into play. Um, I didn't like the idea that doctors were being told no, that they couldn't provide their patients with the treatment that they wanted to provide them with and knew that they ultimately needed. And I knew that I was going to have a a moral hangup with that. So I just, you know, after a lot of talking to younger doctors who, of course, you know, you have to consider the source, right? They were tired and probably a little disgruntled and salty, being that they had probably just been really hazed. But at the end of the day, I I decided that was the best for me. So I chose a different path. And what I did with any good pre-med student does, I became pre-law. And that's ultimately uh, where I went after Muhlenberg was to law school. So did you, were you particularly active on campus or was your mind just totally wrapped around all of the international business and political science. So if there's one thing that's always driven me, it's uh, being self-sufficient financially. So I worked as a work study in the registrar's office. It was a fantastic experience. I loved doing that. And uh, I also was a, a peer tutor, ultimately became a head peer tutor and a learning assistant. And I served as a RA. 
So for a couple of years, so I was pretty busy running, you know, vice president of finance for Hillel, vice president of finance for college Republicans. Um, I really kind of just did whatever I could. I was busy. I treated school to me. I was told my parents said to me, you need to treat it like a full-time job. So I treated it like a full-time job and all I did was school for four years and, and it worked out well. It worked out extremely well. So, it did. It worked out very well. And plus you left your mark at Muhlenberg, which, you know, is really important. Uh, the academics were important to you, but so was your opportunity to be a part of a bigger community and to give back to that community in a way that perpetuated, you know, beyond your four years on campus. So talk to us a little bit, Colette, about your then move to law school and how things started pivoting for you at that point. You know, so it's one of those things where uh, I was, again, math for some reason was always a struggle. And a little did I come to find out about 10, 10, 12 years later that I had an underlying vision disorder that made math really, really difficult. So at this point, I'm, I'm operating kind of blind to that, so to speak, no pun intended, but I, I did not realize that. And uh, standardized tests were just never anything that reflected my grades. I was at the top of my class at Muhlenberg, but my standardized test scores just didn't match up. And I knew. I knew coming back, driving back from Philadelphia, where I ultimately went to law school, that it wasn't the right decision. And I remember crying the entire ride back from Muhlenberg or to Muhlenberg and just knowing like, oh, something's not right. And I totally could have found a job. I was super involved with the Career Development Center and with the Learning, Learning Center. But ultimately I did. I went to Drexel Law in their inaugural year. So a brand new school for anybody wow. that's going to law school no test banks, no outlines, no upper class students to help you. You're literally going into it completely not knowing what you're doing and having no guidance whatsoever. Um, so that was a really unique experience. And about three quarters of the way through my first year, that vision disorder crept up. Um, and I was reading one night and all of a sudden the words started to jump around and slide off the page. I thought I was just tired, you know, sleep deprived is typical for any first year law student doing a ton of reading. Um, and as it turned out, I, I had an underlying vision condition. So that was the first time in my life that I ever really failed at anything. I have to admit, it was something in the past where I would set a goal, make a decision, execute, you know, create a plan, work backwards and just start checking boxes. And that's how I treated my life was, you know, kind of like a list of check boxes at, you know, 21, 22 years old. But uh, it was, it was definitely a big blow to the ego, uh, you know, going from being, you know, 10th or 11th in your college class to literally having to drop out of school because you can't see. So I quickly pivoted and um, went down to DC where I had done an internship for the Department of Justice uh, during the Washington, Washington semester program. Mm -hmm. And uh, within a matter of a couple of weeks had a job. And what was that job? I ended up at the George Washington University. So I started looking at master's programs thinking, well, I'll, I'll go do political management. You know, I love the politics side of things. I knew that's where I wanted to go potentially after law school if I didn't go into the Marine Corps to become a JAG. And uh, the person interviewing me said, hey, you know, if, if you go to school, if you work here, you, you know, we will pay your tuition, 96%. I thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. Where can I find a job? And he says, well, I'm, I'm leaving in three weeks. Do you want, maybe you can have my job. And it, when it literally, I mean, it literally just worked out that way. I, I was down there within a matter of a few weeks working in marketing and communications. And um, if there's one thing, uh, Sam Laposada was a dear mentor to me during my time at Muhlenberg. And he told me that a sharp pencil will take me far. And his advice was sound. It really was. It did take me far because 
it led me uh, on a path that I never anticipated going down. I want us to focus a little bit, well, a lot on what you're doing now, but I think would also be helpful if you just kind of did a quick thread talking about from that point, the different jobs you held on the Hill and elsewhere, um, certainly with Arlington County, and then we'll turn to focusing on what you're doing today so we can get a better flavor of, you know, what your day looks like, um, what kinds of things you're doing day to day, how things have changed. Sure. So I spent the next four years working at George Washington University doing political management work. So essentially doing political reputation management for an entire school. And it was a fantastic experience. I got to interact with people on every side of the aisle, up, down, left, right, didn't matter, very eye-opening. And uh, I happened to network with a, a former White House press secretary and she saw talent in me and said, why are you here? And I said, well, ma'am, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to get to the Hill and I have been trying for two years and I haven't been able to. And within a matter of a few weeks, I was on the Hill as a press secretary for a committee. So that's just how quickly things can change. Uh, you never know who you're talking to. And uh, I spent some time there and then ultimately did what any good person on the Hill does. I went into the revolving door and I went into a trade association and spent the next couple of years there doing, again, reputation, political, uh, public affairs for this organization and all of their members. Uh, it was a lobbying group, essentially, call it that, public interest. And I was fortunate enough, and this is kind of where the wheels started to come off the bus, if you want to say that. I was right after my 30th birthday, and uh, little did I know, and everybody else in the organization, was that the CEO was embezzling money, and they ran the ship into the ground. And I found myself unemployed about two weeks before Christmas. So I was good, good with money, and I, you know, I had a nice pad to, to fall back on. I had my contingency plan if that should happen. And I had always been inclined to moonlight and I was always encouraged to do so by the employers that I had. I always had a backup plan. I always consulted and did other things. So I had a second stream of income coming in. And it was at this time also that literally Ferguson was on fire. Baltimore was having its problems. And I had to really take a step back and take a critical look and say, you know, am I really happy? Is this what I want to do? I never intended for this to be my life. And I realized the answer was no. And I knew that deep down inside. And that's when Lauren, you and I met, I decided, you know, I want to go into law enforcement. You know, I had never served in the military, even though that's something I had wanted to do. And lo and behold, this magazine, Muhlenberg magazine shows up and it's got crime tape and a chalk outline on the cover. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. What is this? <laughs> and sure enough, I open it up and uh, I had maintained some of my contacts in the alumni affairs office, reached out to them, asked to be connected to you and another individual in the article. And, and that's how we, uh, how we got to meet. And I ultimately ended up going with uh, the Arlington County Police Department in Virginia, very community policing oriented, did just about five years with them. And left about a year ago, a little a year and a half ago, to ultimately go into the private sector and, and do what I'm doing now. And, you know, it was a real honor and privilege for me when you invited me to come down when you graduated from the police academy and we were able to get special permission for me to be able to present you with your, your badge, which is normally reserved for family members. So that, you know, besides our friendship and mentorship, that was a a real gift and a privilege to be able to be there for you that day and to share in that moment with you. Um, and I want people to know too that you were at the tops of your class in almost everything coming out of the academy. And that just is exceptional because you were, dare we say, a little bit older than a lot of the recruits. A lot and, older. <laughs> yes. 
10 years but older. You, but you did an amazing job. You like everything you've done in your life. You went in there, you worked it, you focused on what needed to be done. You competed with yourself to be the best that you could be. And you had remarkable success. And it was such a gift to be there to witness the beginning of that part of your life, your professional life. And, you know, it's something that I will always value. Well, you, you quickly became like, like a second mom to me. So, you know, to, to have you there was, was a real honor and, uh, it was a great experience. I wouldn't take it back. Policing taught me so much about myself and about people and about the world. And, you know, ultimately that everybody has a story that wants to be told and everybody wants to be heard. And at the end of the day, I, I really feel like that was my role there. You know, I know that might sound touchy feely and, you know, you think policing, you think of cops and robbers and chasing bad guys, but policing today, at least on the, the street level is if it's done properly is a lot of social work. I mean, I know whether people want to admit that or not, it, it is, it's, it's a lot of intervening in people's lives at moments that they're, they're not having a good day. And I, I, I feel that it was a real honor to be able to serve in that role. And I, I miss it, but uh, I'm on to new things and I feel like I'm, I'm where I need to be. So tell us about that. Talk to us a little bit about what you're doing, what your day looks like in particular, also the work that you've done in trying to help prepare women who are interested in going into law enforcement and the military. Absolutely. So I, I, I decided that I ultimately wasn't going to do any more fitness training for folks. That's something that was one of those side jobs that I had referenced earlier, which, which is what allowed me at, you know, 31, 32 years old to be stronger than my classmates who were 10 years younger, because I was working out all the time. But um, ultimately, now what I'm really have focused on I really divide my time between two things. So I do have a quote unquote full-time job with a full-time employer, um, but it's really, really unique. So I work for a government contractor. It's, you know, it's a company that nobody would recognize the name of. They do a lot of government contracting work that, you know, people don't know about, I guess we'll say that, but they, they do have armed security guards uh, and armed security officers at a lot of federal installations all over the country. And uh, shooting was not necessarily my number one thing at the, in, in the police department. My nerves would get the best of me sometimes, but I, it was a skill that I really worked on. And I ultimately became a firearms instructor. So I'm doing a lot of firearms instruction um, for women, especially that are interested in going into law enforcement or just interested in learning how to shoot a gun. Um, and then I do a lot of law enforcement type training for private security services in the private security services industry. So that sort of takes up, I would say, 30% of my time, depending on what's going on at any given point in time with qualifications multiple times a year or on many, many contracts and, mm -hmm. and such. The other part of it is a lot of compliance work. Uh, I do a lot of compliance work to make sure that, you know, T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Uh, this is a high liability field um, with low margins. And if you make a mistake, it's really bad news, not only for somebody's safety, but for the health of the business itself. So um, I have a critical eye for things and they've put me in that role and I think it's fantastic and I enjoy it. So that's really the sort of the two parts of my, my quote, full-time job. And then being somebody that knows how to teach themselves things, I find myself ever getting pulled into different directions to do other things mm -hmm. with that job. Also, my real, real number one love is building brands. Um, and I, right now I'm, I'm running a referral only brand strategy group, which, mm -hmm. uh, is really my number one favorite thing to do. I, I love building human brands, whether that's a corporate brand with a human persona or a human individual that needs to really go ahead and, and polish their reputation. 
Uh, that's my number one. So really looking at psychology and neuroscience and all the things that we know about you know, human behavior and how the mind works and how people are influenced for good. Of course, I'm not doing this for evil, uh, mm -hmm. for good. Um, so building brands for folks. I just finished up a project for a woman who won on Shark Tank. And, uh, you know, again, it was one of those things where it just started out as a conversation at a patent and trademark office webinar for women. And next thing you know, I have a client. So that's really my number one love is, is helping people um, really shape their own story and teach them how to tell their own story. And that's what I'm doing the other half of my time. Which is fantastic. So you don't have a typical day then. No, I don't. And I love it because I never would never thought my, and my mother, you know, she's like, there's no way you're, you're going to not working from home with the pandemic. So you're going to go crazy, you know, going from being out on the road, you know, 12 hours a day in a cop car to then all of a sudden being home all the time. You know, I had to learn to really create different parts of my life in different places in the house. And we set up a full gym and I have my, my tips and tricks for how I stay sane. So no, no, no typical day, no day looks like the next. So in that regard, uh, since you brought up the pandemic and how things have changed in the last year or so, what changes, if any, have you seen in the course of your work in your, in your bifurcated work that you have that you think is specifically COVID driven or are there any changes like that? I think anytime people are quite frankly faced with the prospect of death, that it changes people's outlooks. Having worked in a hospital and then work, worked on the street as a police officer, I got to see that up close and personal, mm -hmm. uh, which is the reason why I've always sort of led with my heart and allowed my heart to drive me, uh, even though it may not look logical on paper. I see, especially now, I, I see two things. On the firearms training side of things, I see people that are very scared mm -hmm. and they're coming from a place of fear. And they're afraid that society is breaking down and that they need a gun to protect themselves, which I offer a lot more than just firearms training when I teach people like that. The second thing on the branding side of things, which I think is a little more positive, is that people are really having to take a critical look because many people have lost their jobs or have found themselves underemployed. And it has just sparked an amazing amount of ingenuity and just creativity and joy in people that recognize that they're out of alignment personally and that maybe they need to take a look at what it is that they really want to do because their time on this planet, nobody knows how long we have, right? So they want to make the most of that and they want to go ahead and bring their talents and gifts to the forefront. And oftentimes they just need somebody like me to help them channel that. I like that you focused on that positivity aspect of it. And, and I'm curious too, in that vein, when you look at your day and the different things that you have going on, you know, what are some of the things that feed you the most? What are some of the most positive things about the work that you're doing? And then part two of that, you know, what are some of the challenges? What are the things, some of the things that, um, it can be tough to work through sometimes. Well, from the branding perspective, getting people that come to me, I just got off the phone with, um, with a friend of a friend and they were like, oh, I, I, I want to work with you. I have this idea. I have a business. It just, you know, it hasn't gone where I wanted it to go and, and I need your help and I know that you can help me. Mm -hmm. And that, that's amazing because what, I'm, what I love doing, I love taking those critical interviewing skills that I used in the police department to get the answers that I needed for my reports and my investigations and use that skill to essentially interview my clients to figure out like, what's in your head? Where are you going? What are you trying to do? You know, at the end of the day, when this baby is born 
and it has and has feet and legs and it's and it's running and it's on its way like what do you want it to look like and to be able to help somebody go from like well this is my fully formed baby and this is how it's going to look to help them reverse engineer that and help them understand all the things that go into it and teaching them mm-hmm. and ultimately at the end of the day i have the heart of a teacher i don't do things for people i teach them how to do things for themselves and some may argue that's going to put me out of business. I'd beg to differ. If anything, it has actually kept my business, my recurring business, very, very high in everything that I've ever done mm-hmm. because I empower people with knowledge and skill on how to do it themselves. So that's definitely the, the thing that's been the best. The thing that's been the most challenging is we live in a culture, for better or for worse, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody or anything, mm-hmm. but it's instant gratification. I want everything done for me now, right? So a drone pretty soon will be dropping a package off on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even find myself, you know, if the internet's lagging because of a storm, oh, what is, what's going on? Why is this so slow? And I'm sitting here going, you know, 10 years ago, <laughs> 15 years ago, this is not, you know, something that I was complaining about. You have a first world problem, slow yourself down. This is not the issue. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I have people that either want it all done for them which it doesn't work that way. That's mm-hmm. why I do a referral only business because it has to be a certain kind of person that I'm going to work with because otherwise people want everything done for them. And this is not something that anybody can do for you. It's something you have to do for yourself. So imparting that to folks can sometimes be a challenge. Yeah, I'm sure it can. So how about on the other part of your life, the non-branding part? Are there any things that jump out at you with respect to real upsides and some of the challenges? Well, I mean, the security industry is doing well and it's going to continue to do well. I mean, you know, while many contracts are being cut back, the security ones certainly aren't because they need more posts because we're in a high threat potential, potentially with certain assets and things that are going on. So that from a financial standpoint is, is job security for me, at least with ever expanding contracts. The downside of that is though, is it in, this is something that's unfortunately being seen in policing also is a, a decrease in quality of the applicants that are coming in. This is a high risk job with a lot less training that you would get from a, a great police department like Arlington County. So it's something that is a challenge for me to have to work with people that should know what they're doing and don't always know what they're doing to the level that they should and fixing that. So that's a challenge, especially when you're not in the position to say like, Hey, no on this person. Yes. On that person, you know, you give your input, but ultimately at the end of the day, you're given what you're given to work with. And and that's that. Just curious. This is a random question, but do you have any personal thoughts based on your own experience about why there's a drop in the quality of applicants? Is it, you know, part of a, a bigger issue as we, as a nation struggle with what policing or public safety looks like? Or do you think it's something more simple than that? I think it's complex and it's multifaceted. I mean, two big things really come to mind. Number one is that there's no standardization of training across the board at local law enforcement alarm. This is a conversation we've had over dinner probably a half a dozen times in the last six years, is that just because you wear a badge and have a gun, and regardless of whether it's a star or a shield or your color, your uniform's blue or green or black, or, or I don't care what color you wear, at the end of the day, that person getting out of that Brown Vic or Interceptor does not necessarily have the same level of training from one jurisdiction to the next. I mean, you can throw a rock and hit another jurisdiction and their training's totally different. Basic bare minimum standards. 
we are at an unprecedented point right now with retirements due to just hiring freezes back in the 90s. So a lot of people were retiring. You're, you're losing a lot of you know, intellectual capital coming out of the policing world that, you know, the older folks that are retiring now after 25 and 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I just, it's not an attractive field to people that are younger. I mean, and I am not trying to disparage anybody that's of, you know, younger age in their twenties, but I think society has done them a disservice a lot of times by not really focusing them on really winning I, I don't know how else to put it other than that. I'm a competitive athlete, grew up as one. The idea that people would get a participation trophy today, I just think it's something that's changed in society. And it's not an attractive field. You're not getting paid a lot of money. The hours are long. You're exposed to all sorts of unpleasant things. And really, at the end of the day, there's a lot of hiring discrimination against people that have served in law enforcement. And I, I suffered that firsthand. I experienced that. There has to be a total overhaul of the field, ultimately, at the end of the day. And I think we just need to strip it down back to basics and really look at policing and where it's come from and where it is now and really tease out what is it that people in that role really need to be doing and what other pieces of that role would be better served by other professionals like mental health professionals. I didn't feel qualified to be giving mental health counseling on the side of the street, but I'm telling you right now, eight out of 10 calls had some sort of nexus to mental health. It's a real challenge, but I'm glad that even though you have stepped out of day-to-day -day policing to what you're doing, that your voice and your experience and your wisdom is still, you are still in a position to be sharing that through the different work that you're doing. And I think yours is an important voice. And personally, selfishly, you know, I hope that you keep doing that. I hope that you keep that side of you because it's such an important perspective, um, certainly as a former police officer, period, regardless, just, you know, carrying a gun and a badge, but also as a woman and a, a woman in a community that has also received its fair share of abuse at the hands of others. And it's a fantastic career. I mean, I encourage people to go into it. I had, I had three young women from the Lutheran College Washington semester program here in DC. I give a safety briefing every semester. Mm -hmm. I used to do it in uniform with the guy who actually gave me the briefing in 2005. So we came full circle. And uh, three of these young women said, hey, you know, we're interested in law enforcement, counterterrorism. They're more in, more in your world, Lauren. They wanted to go FBI. But I said, hey, let's be realistic here. You're not going to graduate from school and just, you know, go right to the FBI. You're probably going to go into a uniform for five years or so. So why don't you come out to the range and, you know, learn how to properly handle a gun and, and we'll have some chit chat on the ride back and back and forth. And, mm -hmm. and we did, you know, and they were asking me some you know, quite hard questions and they wanted to hear some hard stories and I told them, but mm -hmm. that's important. You know, people need to be really well, well aware of what it is they're getting into. And I think people like me pulling back the curtain within reason, of course, um, not, you know, risk any operational security or anything like that, but talking about my experiences definitely helps put the experience in perspective for young women that are considering it. So here's the big million dollar question. <laughs> Given all that you've done, and as we said in the beginning, you know, I and I've personally, since I've known you for so many years, I, I love that your path has gone in different ways and that you've pivoted. So what advice would you have for a student or a young alum from Muhlenberg if they're interested in any aspect of what you did or what you're doing now? What, what would be your best advice 
And I guess part two is, would that be the same advice you would give to your younger self if you were going to look back or would that look different? Whatever you do, you need a mentor. You know, whether it's you, Lauren, or somebody else, you are literally, you are the, the average of the five people that you surround yourself with. So number one, you need to take a look around and make sure that you have the five people around you that you want around you. If you're drinking, doing things you shouldn't be doing, hanging out with people that you don't think you should be hanging out with, now's the time to sort of make that change and take that inventory of your life. And the best advice I could give is to really do some due diligence. First of all, take some time to just get quiet, leave the phone at home or whatever, go for a walk in nature, disconnect yourself and allow yourself to really become focused and centered and let your heart lead you and decide what it is that you're being called towards. Once you finally have a sense as to what it is you may be called towards, not what your ego and your mind and society tells you, what your parents and everybody tells you you should do, or the next field that's going to be the most lucrative in the next 10 years or whatever, but what you feel like you want to do, you need to go and find out who a master of their craft is in that field. And you need to look at their background and you need to reverse engineer their path and look for the patterns and learn from them. Maybe that's even somebody that might be one of your mentors at some point in the future. You never know. And then I would go out and start looking for mentors that are accessible and really start having those experiences that you feel like you need in order to grow into that field. And that's the path that I took ultimately. I mean, that's, that's how I got to where I'm at. Every time I've wanted to make a change, I look to the person that has done it and has done it exceptionally well. I'm not looking for somebody that just did it. I'm looking for someone that did it and was at the top like you are. And I mean, I could have just gone and found somebody that served as a cop someplace, but that's not what I was looking for. I was looking, my number one thing is I always strive for excellence in whatever I do. I always want to be the best for myself. And that's something that I would tell other people. You have to have that drive to win. It's really important. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Is there anything else, Paulette, that you would like to add or that you would like to touch on that we haven't spoken about? I think really the most important thing is having backup plans. And I didn't say plan, plans, pure mm -hmm. plural. Okay. I mean, I have multiple plans now. My partner's in the military. So I recognize that, you know, we might not be where we are for, for, mu for much longer. And I have to have backup plans, which allow me to, you know, be mobile. You know, I can go anywhere and do my work from anywhere and, and do anything if I absolutely had to. That's number one. And number two is that you need to know how to teach yourself. I was up till two o'clock in the morning on Monday morning, putting together last minute presentations that were dropped on me. And I didn't have anybody here at two in the morning to edit and proofread my work. I had to do it myself. And that was something that law school taught me. And I would say is that you have to learn to teach yourself things. We live in an age of YouTube. You can learn pretty much anything. I mean, things that are dangerous, I don't suggest you go on YouTube. Like if you want to learn how to shoot a gun, please get in touch and I'll, I'll take care of you or find you someone in your area that can. But aside from things that are dangerous, like small engine repair and shooting guns, most things can be taught. taught you can teach yourself. I remember sitting in my dorm room freshman year and teaching myself how to code from HTML for dummies because I needed to create a little website for some group that I was in. So that's your superpower. And you will be absolutely indispensable if you can pivot on the fly, be flexible, and teach yourself anything that you ever need to know. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced and edited by Sofia Echevarria, a senior anthropology major at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded remotely by Paul Kompaski at the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. 
Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. 